it was, okay, let me just read it. I get, just excuse me if I get a little bit emotional. Um, when I was writing this down, um, it took me four hours because there were pages and pages and pages and I had to put it onto one page. So, <laughs> so here it goes. Okay. In 2012, I saw myself as a quiet together woman. I had a relationship with the Lord. I had a wonderful, loving husband. I had five healthy children who were doing well at school and were blessed with the financial resources to support our family. Life was great. I'd faced some challenges in my life, like an unplanned pregnancy as a teenager. I'd failed in my first marriage, the sudden, of, sudden death of my ex-husband, but these were quite insignificant in comparison to what was to come. In 2015, my son reached out and admitted that he had a drug problem. We placed him in one of the most expensive rehabs in Cape Town. Life was back on track again. Well, over the next 18 months, his drug addiction started spiraling out of control. We were now on to the third rehab. He was not serious about facing his drug addiction and relapsed for the fourth time. My husband asked our son to leave our home or go back into treatment. He chose to leave. Well, as you can imagine, as a mother, it was possibly one of the hardest moments in my life, letting him leave and not chasing after him. I didn't know where he was going to sleep. Would he overdose? Would he get into trouble with a drug dealer and end up dead? My mind was racing out of control. My marriage was taking strain. My other children were tired of having a mother that was constantly moody and anxious. I couldn't really function at work. Life was very much out of control. It felt as if Satan had come to kill, steal, and destroy. He had taken my son and was targeting me. I was emotionally and physically exhausted. It was possibly one of the lowest times of my life. Every day I would pray. I'd pray for my son. I'd pray for my family. I would plead with the Lord, please bring my son home. I would read his word. It felt as if my prayers were not being heard. On the 16th of September 2016, I woke up early hours in the morning and I couldn't breathe and I had a severe, had severe chest pain. I was cried, crying and I was scared. I thought I was experiencing a heart attack. <laughs> my husband rubbed my back and reassured me that I was going to be okay. I'd experienced my first panic attack. For the first time in my life, I realized that I had absolutely no control of the situation in my life. We were trying to court section my son to treatment, and things were not going according to plan. As a mother, I was feeling quite desperate. That morning, I physically dropped to my knees, and I called out to the Lord. I said, I need you. I surrender myself and my son to you. I pray in your precious name that you reveal yourself to him. I cannot do this alone. Please take my yoke. I felt the presence of the Holy Spirit that morning. It was, it was as if I was being carried. I was at peace and my fear had gone. At 5 p.m. that evening, my son messaged me to say that he would go back into treatment. This time, we placed him in a Christian rehab. Six months later, he gave his life to the Lord and was baptized. It's been a tough journey for him, 
But knowing that God is the navigator of his life, it makes it easier. When I look back on my experience now, I realize that during this period of trauma in my life, I would pray out of fear. Had I truly surrendered myself to him? My answer to this question would be no. I was still trying to control the situation myself, even though it was clearly out of control. The quality of my faith was great, but the object of my faith was small. I know it is, it is extremely difficult to see the light at the end of the tunnel at times. I see now that I needed to endure the pain and suffering. God was orchestrating a master plan for my life through my suffering. Had I not been through the suffering, my husband and I would not have been prompted by the Lord to open up a Christian drug and alcohol rehabilitation center in East London. We needed to trust in God's plan wholeheartedly. The verse that, that came to, to my heart when I was writing this is from 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 to 10, which I'm sure you all know this verse. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sakes, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in the persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thank you, Tracy. I wonder if that lady can come and share with me that... Sorry, there you are. <laughs> and I've forgotten your name. Kerry, sorry, Kerry. Kerry came just as the break was starting um, and shared this wonderful encouragement with me, and I just wanted to share it with all of you. Okay, so during the course of this week, the Lord's really been show showing me something. And when Judy was saying about leaning in to God, this is the verse that he gave me during the week. And I'd just like to share it. It says, But I have calmed and I have quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. And the picture he gave me is just climbing into his lap, lying with your head against his heart, listening to his heartbeat. And you find the protection and the contentment of a weaned child, somebody who's just been fed and is happy. So we've all been there. We all <laughs> so... Yeah, just yeah, just be encouraged by that. That if you climb into his lap, he's just gonna love you. Beautiful. Thank you, Kerry. <laughs> Such bliss and contentment, hey, of a of a, chi a child that's satiated on on their on their father's chest, and that's what God wants for each of us: quiet, quietened by His love. Um. So what a, what a wonderful time we've had so far, hey? Just uh, first, just remembering why the main thing in life, the main, main, main reason we're here is not to bear fruit, but to learn how to abide more in Christ's love, in, in the Father's love. And then this morning, just reflecting on what it means to have faith and how our faith can actually impact even how we look back at our lives. And I don't know about you, but... Um, 
I've done, I've done this exercise of writing a letter to myself now three times, and each time I felt like God just does something different. He, he just shows me a different aspect of my life and how he was always there, no matter what. And in this session, uh, before we have the breakout groups, um, I'd love to talk about how courageous faith helps us to face our present. Courageous faith to face our present. Our present. A question. What matters most? Yesterday? Today? Or tomorrow? What, what matters most? Today. Yesterday's come and gone. Who knows what tomorrow brings? Today actually matters the most. And yet so many times we aren't living in today, are we? <laughs> we're not focused on the present. We are either held back living in the past or we're living for one day in the future. Today I really feel like God is calling us to have faith to face our present. And it does take faith, you know, to actually face our present, because today can feel so ordinary, hey, or so disappointing. This is not how we thought today or this life was going to live, was going to be for us. And so we think, oh, if, let me rather project into how things are going to be one day or, or where things went wrong, to, to actually face our current situation and what God has planted us in and called us to takes a measure of faith that I sometimes think we don't actually anticipate or actually draw from. And so I believe God really wants us to get this right, ladies, and to empower us to face whatever today has with faith, courageous faith, really, really for real life believing what God says about today. And so to help us do that, let's look at two women from the Bible who faced their todays, their present, in two very different ways. I think we all know them well. Their names are Mary and Martha. And I'm going to read a little bit of their story from Luke 10, verse 38 to 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has let me do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord replied, you are worried and upset about many things. But few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. <gasps> dun, 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 dun. This is the word of the Lord. And I know what you're thinking, so I'm just going to say it. Jesus is acting like such a dude. <laughs> In this, like, he's fully not aware that the dog needs to be fed, the veggies need to be cut up, the oven needs to be turned on, the dishes need to be washed. And he's just saying, live in the moment, Martha. He just doesn't understand what's actually at stake here. That's how I often have read this verse. And I don't think that that's correct, obviously. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't have invited me here. He was telling us 
He wasn't telling her to drop the dishes. I think what he was doing, what he's always so good at masterfully doing, is looking beneath the surface, looking beneath actions and at the heart, at the heart motivations, at the root of our actions. And he's not speaking about the dishes or what Martha's doing. He goes straight for her heart and he says, you're worried and upset about many things. And what Mary has chosen to focus on is best. He was addressing Martha's faith. Because like I've said, our faith is the lens through which we look at the world and it affects what we choose to do and how we choose to think. It certainly did affect Martha. And as I've reflected on this, I've seen seven fruits of Martha's faithlessness that I'd love to just highlight. Yesterday we spoke about fruits and how um, abiding in Christ leads to these fruits uh, of the spirit, of unity, of growth happening in our life. But there can also be false fruits that happen when we don't abide in God, right? And here's some of the fruits of faithlessness, of Martha not really, really for real life believing in God. And I think they're evident all over the story. Her skewed view of God causes her to act in a way that makes it impossible. And here's the first one, for her to be present in the present. The first fruit of faithlessness in our lives, one of them is that it's very difficult when we don't have courageous faith to actually be present to our present. And all of us are in the same boat, aren't we? We live in a world of so much excess, and yet the one thing none of us have enough of is time. We're so hurried, we're so busy, busy, busy all the time, cramming so much into the present that we completely miss it. To be present, to be all there, means that wherever you are, to be all there. To be present means to wherever you are, to be all there, to draw your body, your mind, your focus, your heart to wherever you currently are. Being present is a present. It's a gift. It's a gift to us because it leads to such incredible um, insight and awareness and joy and peace when you are really mindful of where you are. It's a gift to others. The rarest thing, I think, this day and age is actually being present to one another. Hey, not actually thinking about something else or wondering about what we're going to say after this person finishes. What a gift to give someone your uninterrupted attention. And being present in the present is a gift to God because it honors him, the maker of time. Think about that, that God didn't just make this universe, but he also made time. And he says there is a season for everything. And when we don't live in the present, it's our kind of way of of kind of saying to God, you don't know what you've actually done here. You've done it all wrong. <laughs> I need to cram more of the past or more of the future into now because you haven't set time up uh, in an appropriate way. <laughs> I think about this uh, man, Tim Sutherland, that I once uh, met when we were traveling at some point, Taryn and I, and we went to visit his church. And we were having this meeting and we had a 13-month-old Eli who was traveling with us, our firstborn, and he was crawling around, and Tim got onto his hands and feet, and he was just crawling around for half of this meeting uh, with this little boy, and I asked him about his own kids, and they were grown up, 
And then I said what so many people have said to me. I said, oh, it all goes too fast, doesn't it? Because I thought this guy's so, so living in the prison and he's so wonderful with little kids. He must really miss having little kids. And he looked up and he said with such sincerity, he said, oh, no, time goes just as fast as it's meant to. If my kids were small for any longer, they would have driven me nuts. <laughs> and if it, had gone, um, if it had gone faster than it had gone, um, it would have been a tragedy. But I'm so enjoying the season that they are in now in tertiary education and becoming friends with my boys. And I thought that was beautiful to actually honor God with our time and go, actually, God, you are wonderful in how you've put this all together and wound the clock. There is enough time today to do everything that you've called me to do and to live in the present. Isn't that beautiful? But that takes faith, to be present in the present. A lack of, of faith, the fruit of faith, faithlessness is an inability to be present in the present. The second fruit of our faithlessness is that we begin to derive our worth from our work. We derive our worth from our work. Last night, I described this as beginning to confuse ourselves with the fruit we produce. God says, you are the brancher. You're the branches. You're the branch. You're not the vine, and you're not the fruit that you produce that hangs off your life. But when we live faithless lives, like Martha, we begin to think that we are what we produce. We are. Our worth is in our work. Think about how your work can make you feel worthy or not. You can get to the end of the day. I can feel like this sometimes, and I either feel good or bad about myself depending on how much I've produced. Think about the elder son in that story of the prodigal son, of how much self-righteousness he got from how much work he had done for the father. And the father scratches his head and says, but all of this was yours anyway. You were never working for your inheritance. Prioritizing productivity over being present is what so many of us do. We're busy addicts, adrenaline junkies, multitasking until we can't ever just be all there, present to the present. We mistake busyness for our worth and our value. And if we've got through enough things on our to-do list, we feel like worthy humans. And if we haven't, we feel a creeping sense of unworthiness. This certainly takes a hit, this uh, drive of finding our identity and our productivity when we have small kids, doesn't it? For those of us that, that are, have become mothers or, ha or have had children, there's nothing like small kids <laughs> to just make you not get through things like you thought you could, hey? <laughs> I remember um, having, particularly a few years ago when we had lots of small kids, and I remember feeling like, I think it's Gulliver, in Gulliver's Travel, that where he goes to an island with all those small people. Is it Gulliver? And I haven't actually read it, but that the picture has always struck with me of being that giant, and he arrives on this island of small people, and they end up uh, kind of pinning him down. <laughs> and there's all these small little people, and you're just there. That's what life with small kids is like. You're Gulliver, and you thought, oh, you're so small, so cute. What could you possibly do? Well, they can just pin you to the ground, really, <laughs> if there's enough of them. Um, and I think that's what it's like being a mom, especially with young kids. And I think that that's good. <laughs> because when we pulled down by these little people, we're close to the ground. And humble, that word humble, it actually comes from a word um, humus, which means down to earth. 
Sometimes God pulls us down, maybe through sometimes it's illness or through a season where you're inactive and you realize, oh, I'm worth more than my work, than what I can produce with these hands. It's a beautiful place to come to sometimes. Martha certainly needed that revelation. The third fruit of faithlessness in our present is that we become self-reliant versus God-reliant. You see this all over Martha's life in this passage. She's just making a plan. She's doing it all. She's so much more aware of what she has to do for God than what God can do for her. Charles Spurgeon says this, It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this, for he is constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Christ. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers or our doings. It is what Jesus is and has done, not what we are that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking to Jesus, not to ourselves. Self-reliance versus God-reliance is a fruit of faithlessness. In my own life, um, uh, a story of this is I remember a few years back, about five, six years ago back, being in a wonderful women's conference setting similar to this and hearing this wonderful talk. Um, and the reflection time uh, that we all had to do on our own was writing down what are some of the idols in your life, some of the things that you tend to rely on rather than on God and his gospel. And I remember just really sitting there and thinking, gosh, Self-reliance is my thing. I, I, I actually can do it without God's help if I, if I need to. You know what I mean? Because I, I have learned how to just hustle and run on this treadmill. And I don't need other people as much as I think I ought to because I can just get it, you know, if a busy person gets it done. I can just do it all. I don't really need community as much as, as, I, as, I, as I ought to. So I remember writing that down and really having a moment with God and going, God, won't you deal with the self-reliance in my life? And I sometimes look, think back and I think how he must have been smiling and rubbing his hands together because it wasn't very long after that that I fell pregnant with twins. <laughs> our fourth and our fifth. And my, how that knocked self-reliance out of me. <laughs> really, I've got other idols and issues I've got to deal with, sure. But self-reliance has been clapped out of me because I, I think I could kind of get by, you know, before juggling everything. But when we had those twins, I had to just fall down. <laughs> I was, if, if I was Gulliver before, now I was nailed there permanently for at least two years. And I had to rely on God in a way that I had never relied on him. I had to find my worth, not in my works, but in God. And I also had to rely on other people, which sucks, you know, especially if you're a self-reliant person. We got meals for so long, and so many sweet people came and did things that I would have rather done myself, but I couldn't. And I look back, at, and, I, and that was such a sweet lesson, to, to learn how to ask for help, how to actually embrace help, and how to especially rely on God and not on myself. Something under that is uh, Brene Brown says that if we cannot humbly accept help, every bit of help we give is tainted. Women, friends, 
we need to humbly accept some help. We all need help in some areas of our life. And, and if we say, oh, no, 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 I'm, we wouldn't say this. But if in our hearts we go, no, no, I've got it all together. I'm too good for help. Thanks very much. But I can help you. Every bit of help you give is tainted. Self-reliance versus God-reliance. Sometimes we've got a need to be needed, a toxic self-centeredness. I certainly have had that in my life. And underneath, underneath that is actually a faithlessness. It's a, it's a lack of truly believing that we can rely on God, that actually he has everything we need. The fourth fruit of faithlessness that I see in Martha is how distracted she was. It even says, Martha, Martha, you are distracted by so many things. Just imagine, just place yourself as a fly on the wall in Martha's home. The God of the universe is sitting on her couch. <laughs> the one that's hands span the galaxies. Who formed her <laughs> in her mother's womb? Who knows her better than she knows herself and loves her more? God is in her living room, sitting there, loving on people and telling them the secrets of life. And where is Martha? She is in the kitchen, <laughs> scrubbing that flipping pot, feeling so much rage cleaning going on. We all know about rage cleaning. If you've got that. <laughs> going, flipping heck, this black spot won't come out of this pot, and the rice is boiling, and where the flip is Mary? Oh, I can't believe she's left me. She always does this. And God is sitting in her living room. Talk about being distracted. And we can laugh at her, but how many of us do the same thing with our whole lives? <laughs> We're so fixated on the small little spots and on getting things right and on so many things that we miss the boat entirely, that God is in your living room, that God is there in the early hours of the morning in your study waiting to meet with you. And I know what you're thinking because I think it, oh, but there's just not enough time and the season of life that I'm in. This is what John Piper says. One of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook, and I'd add Instagram, will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. I'm just going to read that again so it can sink in. One of the great uses of social media will be to prove to us, because God knows already, at the last day that prayerlessness was not from lack of time. Ladies, we all have more time then we think we have, don't we? It's just how we choose to spend it. And so many times we can get distracted by so many things that aren't really important, like Martha. We can let urgencies crowd out the all-important. And this is a fierce battle on our lives and on our souls, isn't it? So many more distractions than there used to be to crowd out the all-important. And I'm on a journey with this, but one thing that I'm realizing is that you have to decide before the battle which side you're on. You need to decide before the day begins how you're going to spend your time. You can't just think that in the moment you're going to choose the right way. Am I right? You've got to allocate your time beforehand on how you're going to spend it. And I love how Jesus speaks about Martha here. He says, Martha, Mary, he says, Mary chose what is best. Chose. 
It's actually a choice. Our lives are our own, and we actually get to choose how we spend our time. It's no one else, you know, we can think, oh, you know, I'm pulled in so many directions. No, you choose to be pulled in so many directions, and I promise you I'm preaching to myself, yeah? Mary chose what is best. It's an actual intentional choice whether you're going to be totally succumbed and overwhelmed and distracted or whether you're going to align your life to focus on what is all important. Also notice that he says she chose what is best. What is the enemy of the best? It's good. It's not the worst. It's not like, it's not like Martha was out there kind of niving people and choosing something terrible to do with her time. She just chose what was good. And good is the enemy of the best. There's lots of good things you could do in the day. There's lots of, uh, of fine, nice things that you can do. But how, at how many times do those come at the expense of what is best? Sure. The enemy of the best is the good. What I'm learning is that every yes has an equal and opposite no. I spoke a bit about this last night, about my kind of chronic need to say yes and to kind of please everyone. But uh, what I've realized is how every single time I say yes to something, I'm saying no to hanging out with my kids at that moment or being present to God at that moment or having space to actually be missional and reach more friends for Christ or just having space to be with myself and pull myself towards myself. Every yes has an equal and opposite no. Choose what is best. That's the antidote to the fruit of faithless distraction. The fifth fruit that I see in Martha's life is that when we are faithless and we get just caught up in our faithless doing, we're more prone than ever to comparison. Comparison. Notice how Martha doesn't just say, God, I'm doing all of this stuff. The whole time that she's doing it, She's got the scales <laughs> in her mind, and she's comparing herself, what she's done, to what her sister's done. The, she's so prone to comparison, and we all are when we don't have faith-healed, grace-healed lenses on. Rigby says this. I don't know if he's quoting someone, but he often says it. Comparison will curse your destiny. Comparison will curse your destiny. Elsewhere uh, in the Gospels, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he tells one something and the others say, and this person says, well, what about them? And God smiles and he says, what's it to you? I'm telling you what I've asked you to do. And I, I feel like God wants to do that with each of us today. He wants to eyeball you. And instead of you looking around going, what about her? She has it easy. Or can you not give her that job? He says, what's it to you? You run your race. Stay in your lane. Comparison will curse your destiny. I, um, I don't know how this happened, but when I was uh, at the end of grade 11, I got elected to be head girl of my school. And I, I, I genuinely wasn't the head girl material type. I arrived at school late every day. I had, very I had a scruffy appearance, <laughs> never really focused too much on brushing my hair properly, and, um, and I just wasn't that kind of like A-type leadership person. And so I thought to myself, they must have got it wrong. <laughs> they must have miscalculated the votes. And 
And although I did my best in my matric year, I remember being hounded and harassed all the time by this voice in my head that said, all the time, you're an imposter here. <laughs> they don't actually want you. What would Zoe do? And Zoe was the head girl when I was in grade eight. And she had been this pinnacle of glory, you know, in my head. She was a first-team hockey player, beautiful, friendly, articulate. And I remember, and I was none of, I mean, I was friendly, but I was in the <laughs> D team for hockey. And, and I remember just always living in my head with a WWZD <laughs> um, bracelet on. In every moment, I was trying to walk in Zoe's shoes, thinking, what, what would Zoe do? And when I think back, God taught me so much in that year. But one thing that I, I live with, a regret that I live with, is that I didn't just go, wow, God's placed me to be a unique kind of head girl in this school, um, and I'm going to do it in my unique way. Instead, I was trying to kind of wear Saul's armor or Zoe's armor and trying to do it the way I thought it needed to be done. How many times do we do that in our life? Do you go through either your mothering or your wifing or your working or your Christian life and you you're trying to put on someone else's uniform and go, what would Julie do? What would Mary do? What would Sarah do in this situation? And God says, no, what would you do? I've made you uniquely perfect for the children I've given you, for the spouse I've given you, for the life calling I've given you. What would you do with me holding your hand? Let's let go of comparison. It curses our destiny especially in the world of Instagram and Facebook, we see everyone else with clothes on. We see them with their best side, smiling. And what do we see when we look at ourselves? We see ourselves with our clothes off. <laughs> we see ourselves at our worst angles. And how unfair and how blasphemous that we take that picture of ourselves and that picture of someone else and we go, God, <laughs> I don't measure up. I, I can't do that because, look, you didn't make me competent enough or pretty enough or outgoing enough. God made you perfect for your call and for what he's called you to do. Just a side note under this, I think sometimes, especially as women, is we can hide behind some kind of false humility and go, who, me? No, 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 I'm humble. I could never be used by God or step out and do something. And that's a false humility. It's actually a preoccupation with yourself. It's not self-forgetfulness, is it? Who are you not to, in the words of, I think, Nelson Mandela, who are you not to live a glorious, God-glorifying life where you step out, not because you're great, but because you're loved greatly and you know who you are in God? Who are you not to have confidence and use the gifts God has given you and to be a conduit like a branch that pours out love and grace on a love-starved, grace-starved world. Who are you not to? I really do feel like um, God is asking us to step out of our comfort zones today, to let go of this cloak, this horrible burden of comparison, and to just confidently live in our own shoes and step out and do what God has called us to in freedom that we can only get from being really self-forgetfulness, from realizing we're not the vine, we're not the fruit, we're just the branch, but then be the branch. Be a conduit of God's grace and love. Amen. Right, number six. The next fruit that we see all over Martha's life and our own is she's wracked by worry and anxiety. We see it in her actions. 
And we see it in Jesus' own insight into her life. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by so many things. You see, this happens when we see ourselves in the center of everything. When we think it's all up to us and we put ourselves in the center and we take on all the burdens that actually were meant to be on God's shoulders, then of course we have to worry. If this is all up to us, getting our life to work and making all the plates spin and making sure everything happens as we think it should happen, then it really is worth worrying about, hey? There was so much on Martha's shoulders, and there's so much that we put on our shoulders, but I wonder how much of it God has placed on our shoulders. He says, there's so much, but there is only one thing that's best. Wow. I think sometimes we get this all wrong, hey? We put all the things on, except that one thing on our shoulders, and the result is that we are wracked by worry and anxiety, because we think we're at the center of this whole thing, and we're not, we're the branch. God is the vine, and he bears the fruit through us. We need to just abide. The seventh fruit of faithlessness is that we chase after perfection. There's this, uh, th- this kind of like quasi-verse that sometimes used to be quoted, I think, more than in the past than now, but that cleanliness is next to godliness. Have you heard that before? <laughs> and, um, and I know my mom certainly <laughs> told me it when I was young, but it's actually not in the Bible. And I think there's a, of course, cleanliness is an important, you know, personal hygiene. We all need to. But I wonder how many of us think that, our, that the state of our lives and our homes is next to godliness. And I think God would want to go, actually, I'm not measuring you up to that standard at all. There's only one thing that's important. Now, of course, I'm not saying never go home and do housework or share the chores at home. But I am saying that don't confuse that with godliness. Martha certainly did. And I think we live in a Pinterest society sometimes. How many of you guys are on Pinterest where you look at oh, all the perfect decor things and foods and kids' parties that you could have? And we can live under the tyranny of the ideal, the monster of perfection, because it really does crush us in the end, hey? Because who really can live a perfect hour, let alone a perfect life? We just can't have it all, and yet all around us, we buy into the myth that surely we should, that that if we just organized our time right, if we just did things right, we can have it all, and yet we never really can. When I've already exposed myself as being someone that tends to uh, do too much and think uh, that I can handle too much. If you were here last night and you heard my story about Ivy's birth, you'll know that. But I didn't learn, actually this happened before Ivy, when Finn was born. I didn't learn my lesson and hence why, uh, why that deadline happened with Ivy. But when Finn was born, my second child, uh, I've always been a freelance writer, as I said, and I went, I got a job uh, with a different agency, and I think he was about six weeks old, and I thought I can, or even maybe a bit younger, and I thought, actually, I can totally do this job from home, um, but I needed to go in for the brief, to go and get the job and have this brainstorming meeting. And I remember going off, I, it was probably around five weeks after having Finn, and it was the first time I wasn't wearing pajamas, <laughs> and I put on a dress and high heels, and I remember thinking, 
as I drove there quite smugly, you can have it all. <laughs> like, actually, look at me. I've got a newborn baby at home. I'm going to my first job that I love. This is wonderful. And God was about to humble me greatly. I arrived at this agency, MC Saatchi, in town, in Cape Town, went up to this 13th floor glass meeting room, and everything was so swish, you know, glass boardroom, all these very trendy-looking people all around, and I sat down there just trying to blend in, <laughs> and um, next to me were two trendy guys, graphic designers, and we were getting briefed, and two things happened that made me realize, no, you can't have it all. <laughs> you just have to embrace your imperfection and your limitations. The first was that I had forgotten to wear breast pads. And if you've had a child and you knew, you'll know this is terrible. And I was wearing this dress and my one boob just started leaking. And I remember thinking, I just have to sit and like think the whole way through. I had to go mm -hmm, the whole time. So I was distracted by just holding my whole upper half of my body behind my elbow for this whole meeting, which was painfully long. And only about halfway through did I realize that these guys, these two young hip graphic designers sitting on either side, had swiveled their chairs away from me. And I started to feel quite self-conscious. I thought, what? Why are these guys both, like, really turning their backs? We're in a board meeting here. And I thought, what, what, is, what, what is it about me? And then I looked, because I'd been so distracted by taking notes and hiding my one boob, I hadn't realized that my open laptop had moved on to screensaver pictures of the birth. <laughs> and these are like 21-year-old hipster guys that are scarred for life, basically. So they had, they had seen more of me than they had wanted to see. So, so that was, that's my funny story of chasing perfection and trying to have it all. You can't have it all. And I just, I walked out there and I was like, God, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and yet I still went on to try and finish that deadline after having Ivy. So it's, I'm obviously quite hard-headed. But the truth is that we all chase after perfection and we just, ladies, we're never going to get there. <laughs> and that's fine. I think the reason why we sometimes chase after it is because we think if we can just get to the end of our to-do list, if we can just... If we can just nail this kid's party, if we can just do this one thing really perfectly, there won't be any gaps. And then we won't have to need faith, hey, because you only need faith in the gaps. <laughs> you only need faith when there's actually a chasm between where you are and where you're going, or where you are and where you want to be. When things aren't yet perfect, you need faith. But until Jesus comes back, there is only one perfect person, and it's not us. It's not you. <laughs> it's Jesus. And he embraces your perfect imperfection. I think that's what he'd like Martha to do too in each of us. Uh, I found this quote by a man, an author called Peter uh, Grieg, and he wrote this uh, while he was reflecting um, on an Easter service. Taking the bread and wine and reflecting I'm taking the bread and wine and reflecting on how weird and wonderful it is that the wounds of Christ were still visible after his resurrection. He heals our wounds without removing our scars. He makes us whole, but he does not perform plastic surgery. Jacob fathers a nation with a limp. Let us 
too, lay down the illusions of perfection. Let us wear our wounds as medals today. Let our authority flow from our vulnerability and our life from loss. Isn't that beautiful? Let's let go of trying to chase after perfection. Another uh, word in the Bible that's often, uh, in the Hebrew, it comes from the same word perfect, is complete, is finished. And I think we so often just want this thing to be complete and finished, hey? And yet, there's only one thing that is completely finished, and that's the work of our salvation. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. What a beautiful, beautiful thing to say into each of our lives, into each of our unfinished, untidy, messy, gappy lives. It is finished. Of course, we've still got a way to go and there's things we need to do, but we we do them because it's already finished. The, The greatest job has already been done. And so we can joyfully do the rest of the smaller things but with a spirit that's at rest, that can abide in God because the greatest thing is finished, is perfectly completed. When I began this talk, I said that all these things we see in Martha and ourselves boil down to faithlessness, to a lack of courageous faith. And so hence, as I wrap this session up, the antidote to them, to distraction and comparison and chasing after perfection and all these things, finding our worth in our work, the antidote to them isn't trying harder. It's not trying to do more or trying to believe more. It's simply stopping what we're doing and coming back to his feet like Mary, choosing what is best, believing that Jesus is in the room and that he is who he says he is and we are who he says we are. When we come back to Jesus' feet like Mary did, we don't need to find our validation in what we do because we find it already in Christ and in his finished work on the cross. We can walk away from the screaming urgency sometimes and like Jesus, go to a quiet place and find rest for our souls because we don't overestimate our ability and our centrality in any story. When we come back to Jesus and his feet, we don't have to numb ourselves with distractions. We can be fully present to every moment. When we come back to Jesus, we don't need to compare ourselves with anyone else because we realize he has made us unique and he is a good God and he loves us just as we are. We can be content in every circumstance. We don't need to be racked with worry and anxiety because we know that God goes before us. And we don't need to hold on to this chasing perfection, this myth of perfection. We can drop the small, petty things in our lives that so often consume us, and instead lean into his chest and into greater intimacy with him. Can I pray for us?